Praise be to our God. It's a beautiful day so far, though it's pretty cold and overcast this morning. And again, we're able to meet and we have a place to worship. And pardon? Oh, sorry. We don't, it, it's missing. We lost the pulpit last time. Now the transceiver, is what it's called, is missing. And it's that transceiver that works with the lapel. That other transceiver only works for the microphone. So I suppose I could get the microphone. Okay, thank you. Just uh, throw something at me, because I forget I don't have the microphone. Because I'm thinking about, I don't know, preaching. So, thank the Lord that we have a place to meet. And uh, they may be opening soon this year, hopefully. And uh, that may give us options to have fellowship hall and things like that, uh, prayerfully in the near future. So keep that in your prayers. Other than that, we have before us the call to worship, the call that goes out to the entirety of the world, and we are blessed by God's grace, and as we will learn this morning in sovereign election, to be able to respond to that call of worship. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing 428, 428 in the handout. Pardon? Yeah, she'll play through it once. It's a new song. the tithes and offerings.
Let us pray. As we gather together on this, your Lord's Day, God, thankful for the resurrection of Christ Jesus, as this day reminds us that this is his day. And God, we are grateful because all the days are are your days. You created them. You created all things that we have around us, Lord. And you could have easily asked for every day to be given explicitly and directly to you. But in your mercy and your love and the design you've given us, God, you've given us six days to take care of many of the things in this world, things that are not sinful in and of themselves, God. It should be done ultimately for your glory. Uh, But it is this day, God, and we're thankful to have such a day of rest, a day of rest for our body, and a day of rest as every day is, as we rest in Christ Jesus, Lord. And a feeding of our soul in a special manner, God, because we are gathered together in public worship to be with the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are redeemed and those baptized in the same baptism that which we were baptized with as well. And God, to hear your word and sing praises before you, Lord, to learn about you and the glories and to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be admonished as needed by your word and by your spirit. This morning in particular, God, we are thankful for your sovereign goodness towards us, the directing of all things for our good and giving us peace and protection in the here and now, Lord, through your special providence, giving us a church and family and one another, Lord, and above all, God, for feeding our souls and drawing us unto Christ, and molding us into holiness, and calling us from eternity past, God, before we had decided yes or no, you had chosen your love and put it upon us. We thank you, God, for covering our sins through Christ Jesus, that, Lord, you've awakened in our conscience and awakened in our hearts and minds, Lord, the realization of sin, the hatred of sin, the rejection of sin, the shame of sin. And may we, Lord, not lose that sense and those understandings, God, of transgressions of your law, Lord, but ever daily, Lord, to encourage one another, to encourage ourselves, to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, to fight against sin and its temptation and all its manifestations, and to acknowledge, God, to repent, to turn away from, yes, Lord, and not to be discouraged from repentance, but to to know that we are called to daily repentance, God, to ever keep fighting, Lord. May we not despair, rather be encouraged by the gospel promise, Lord, that we can bring our sins before you, and you have promised to wipe them away, and that we are indeed justified and sanctified and will be ultimately glorified. May this be our hope. May this be our motivation to carry on day by day, Lord, and to be thankful for the gospel of Christ Jesus. We pray for our nation, God above, as we think of our fellow Americans, many of whom, Lord, are losing their inheritance right before their eyes, if not their nation. Indeed, that includes many, many, Lord, of the Christian church. The nation that we thought was ours is so different, even from 20 years ago. And so, Lord God above, we pray that those who are in despair, that is, those who are not believers, and this is all they have, which is the inheritance of their forefathers, the economy, their jobs, their neighbors, this nation, Lord. We know there's more, of course. There's a heaven that we look forward to, Lord. But looking to heaven, as we saw here in Peter, does not mean that we don't care about the things of this world, that we just stop loving one another and are indifferent towards our relations towards one another. And that includes our relations to our fellow citizens, God. And so we pray for them. We ask that they would have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would see their need of a Savior, that they would see that this world is indeed failing and falling apart, God, and nations are judged and cast aside through your providence. That they would cling to Christ Jesus, Lord. We ask and pray, God, that perhaps we can, in our own little way, point them and have access to these fellow citizens, our neighbors and whoever else they may be, to show them their need of a Savior. We pray, God, in your providence to continue to work through this nation, through the local laws, through the laws of the state and national level, God, to maintain peace and prosperity in spite of so many lies and confusion and chaos that we've had in the last year, that the truth would be known, Lord, the truth, whatever it may be, in politics and various other sundry areas, Lord, in society, and, of course, COVID. To that end, God, we pray and continue to pray for our health situation, that COVID and all its ramifications would be dealt with quickly and swiftly and done away with, and we can return back to normalcy. And that those who are high risk, even for other things, such as flu and whatnot, before COVID, we had access to N95 masks, but now we don't. 
And so, God, we're supposedly in a great economy and have the greatness of free markets, and yet we do not have that. May these things change for those who are in need of them, God, to protect themselves, and we can protect them as well. We pray, Lord, for those who have chronic ailments and sicknesses of their body and things they don't even quite know what it is, such as right now with Mrs. Harvey in the hospital, Lord. Our hearts go out to her and her husband, that you would give wisdom to the doctors and the nurses to understand the source of her difficulties, and that she can come back to normal, Lord. Heal her, we pray. Heal us, God. May especially you be with us, Lord, to persevere in spite of our lack of healing that we would not lose faith in you because things have not gone our way. But rather, Lord, we will double down our belief in you and our commitment to you regardless because we know this body is failing and is fading away, God, and that you shall return and there will be no more tears and no more sorrows and we will have a great resurrected body with no more effects of sin upon it. And God, we pray for access to good food and diet and exercise to take care of our health because this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, uh, may we continue to do what we can to maintain health, to maintain our bodies, but especially to maintain our souls, Lord, to read your word, to pray daily, God above, to meditate upon it, to talk of the things of God and its relation to this world throughout the week as issues come up. Help us, God, to continue to feed upon your truth throughout the week, we pray. For your glory alone, amen. Let us go ahead and read the Ten Commandments. It's an insert. Let us read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter. First Peter 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2. I'll go ahead and read the first verse as well to make it more clear. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Spirit of truth and illumination and holiness, we ask that we would understand and be awed and encouraged and re-educated, if need be, Lord, in the truth, the doctrine of election, that we are selected by the Father from eternity past unto salvation for his own glory's sake. May this great mystery and awe-inspiring truth humble us as well as comfort and strengthen us to do our duty in your kingdom. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Imagine a world where random chance has free reign. Where hurricanes in the south run amok and slip out of God's control at the last minute, killing the wrong part of town, destroying the wrong things. Or you walk outside and slip on a slippery dime, killing you before God's plan was enacted. The stars move out of alignment, the quarks collapse into non-existence, because that's chance, as opposed to cause and effect and patterns. The world that we know. This is a world without a sovereign God. Imagine a world where the devil has free reign, where people are possessed by demons against their will. Others are deceived into thinking good is evil, and evil is good, that is, believers themselves. Because God can't stop them, or God can't stop the devil from deceiving them. While those who are saved as well worry every day about losing their soul and being tripped up. Because God can't stop sin, God can't stop the devil. This is a world without a sovereign Lord. It's the opposite of what we find ourselves in. Praise be to God, we do not live in such a world. That we live in a world where God is in control. And so we can equip ourselves with the truth and embolden our souls with revelation that God is sovereign. God is in charge, not random chance, not hurricanes, not the devil, and not your sins. And there is order in the universe, and that order is directed by the great and mighty God and his sovereign power and might. We see this in the first point, God's sovereignty, and specifically in creation. Where we are now, the world we find ourselves in this morning, and the difficulties, this pulpit, this floor, you before me, There was a time in which none of this existed. There was nothing. It's hard to imagine, because often when we think of nothing, or maybe that's just me, when I think of nothing, I think of empty space. But empty space is what? Something. And it's not a play on words. It's it's literally a thing called space, and the the gap between the planets. And although the scientists are discovering there's something there as well, perhaps dark matter, Even that space is something. It's a volume. It's distance. It's length. And there's time involved when you try to travel it. In the beginning, before God created all things, there wasn't even space. There was no distance as we know it. It was just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then he spoke. And then there was something. The thing that we know as creation. The blackness of space, volume, distance, length, mass, time. These come from God Almighty. And they came from nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means, as you recall when I preached through Genesis, everything associated and connected with the heavens and the earth. The Jews weren't thinking, well, it's just this planet that we're standing on and a few stars up there, but not the clouds, not the trees, not the water. It's the planet, it's the earth. You know, this kind of literal, wooden, confused ways. It's shorthand for everything. And not with any help, not with any angels, not by anything but by his Word, he spoke. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. 
that was nothing, and God brought it forth into something. It became something by his might and by his power, and his power alone. That shows his sovereign, omnipotent strength, brothers and sisters. Creation echoes that reality. Nobody helped him. We can't do anything like that. We can't create anything from nothing. Everything that we have, right? You ever thought about this? Everything that we make. You're like, oh, this guy's pretty creative. This artist is clever. What he has made with his hands or with his mind and his drawing, this building, has something already before it. It came from something that already existed. We do not make something from nothing. We are not that powerful. Think about the amazing might of God in doing that, in sustaining it, what we call providence, that creation. We make something from something else, (laughs) from the wood of the earth, from the rocks of the ground. We put it together, and we're amazed it lasts for a couple thousand years, but of course it starts falling apart a little here, a little there. God keeps it all together. We are derivative, and our creations and the things that we make and do are derivative. God is not. And he made everything, as I pointed out before, the heaven and the earth, the great Himalayans, the majestic Rocky Mountain chain, from the furthest supernova, a hundred million light years away to our glorious sun and moon. From the lumbering elephant to the graceful blue whale of the deep, all creatures great and small, Our Lord God made them all. All things seen and unseen by our Lord and Master. The smallest quark, which makes up the smallest atom, which makes up the smallest molecule of the smallest cell of the smallest part of our body. Even the deep, black, empty vacuum of space exists because of him, made by him. Because it wasn't just things that we touch and see, but the unseen. Who's ever seen the number one? Sure, you write on a chalkboard, but you know that's not the one, because other people have different ones they draw. The abstractions of this world, the math, the physics, and the like, describing something came from God. So when we say God made the heavens and the earth, it's not just things that we touch and feel and taste and see, but also the unseen are created by God. The things that we cannot see. Angels. We could see them if they came along, but we don't see them. Who's ever seen an angel? You've never seen an angel. You've seen possible representations that vaguely represent something in the Bible at best. This is what our God has made. And you know how much energy and effort it takes just to get out of the morning, out of bed in the morning, right? Let alone building something, let alone building a city, let alone building a nation, let alone building a world and a universe and all that's built into that. How much power and might, a billion, billion nuclear bombs are nothing in comparison to that might and strength of God who made all these things. And in his providence, that is, he directs and upholds all of it so that it does not fall apart to what? Random chance. We have a helpful definition in the confession of providence. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. In Acts 17.26, as you may recall, we read, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. 
God determines where the nations go and no further. God determined that America will be here in America and our borders shall be up the north with Canada and the south with Mexico. Not man, although man was part of that providence and he made those decisions, but he didn't do it in a vacuum. He couldn't have done it without God's might and power behind him. Remember that. If you recall in early American history class, right, you all just read that every week, whip out a book, The Monroe Doctrine, or the belief of America is our great destiny. We're supposed to go to the West Coast. They had that dream, they had that vision, and God gave them the power to enact it, not themselves. They may pat themselves on the back, but they should give God all the praise. The watchman watches in vain unless the Lord guards the city. That's what this doctrine of providence reminds us. And he has made from one blood every nation, from Adam and Eve, all the ethnos, all the people groups of the world to dwell on the face of the earth and determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And if they even dwell there anymore over time, because we know many a nation has fallen and is no more with us any longer. Because God took away their power, and their might. That's God's providence. Its extent is what God created. All things he created, he has control over. You make a building, you make a shack in the backyard, you can tear it down. You're greater than that shack. Nature, from the softest breeze to the ferocious hurricane, God is directing it all. The animals, the lumbering elephant to the hyperactive ant, God is directing it all in his providence. And humans themselves, in Acts 17.28 we read, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets, Paul tells them, has said, for we are all his offspring. Even the unbelievers, many of the pagans of the day, recognized something of the might and power of God, although they talked about gods in the plural, and they had a twisted version of it. They had some semblance of the truth. That there is something greater than us in this world. At least back then, during the time of Paul, and for thousands of years, the most ignorant unbeliever knew there was something greater than themselves in this world. And yet here we are in America, where the vast majority of the citizens don't believe that anymore. To one extent or another. It's all kind of theoretic for many of them. It's a spirituality, as we'll hear about uh, later in some Bible studies and sermons is going to come up. Zechariah. They yearn for some of this, to be sure, but it really means nothing to them. For many, many, many thousands of years, the unbelievers, it meant something to them, and they acted upon that belief that there was something greater and more powerful than them. And we know that's God. Now, In him we live and move and have our being, and God directs by his most holy will all things to their final destination. As a reminder again, in directing everything for God's glory, God is not the author of sin. In 1 John 2.16 we read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The origin of sin is not in God, although God directs it to a greater good. When you have that old saying, right, you've dealt with this in your own life. When the world gives you a lemon, make lemonade. And that's a coarse way of saying bad things happen, you try to do something good out of it. God can do that to the nth degree. That's providence. That's part of providence. And so it's not unreasonable, morally speaking, to say God is not the author of sin, and yet he so works the sinful actions of men and directs them towards his great and holy plan, that it's for his glory and for our good, but he is not the author of sin. He is not contaminated by sin. Genesis 50.20 is the great text 
Write it out in your Bible, brothers and sisters. Put it up on your door for 2021, because we certainly needed it in 2020. Genesis 50-20, you know this text. But as for you, he tells his brothers, you meant evil against me. You threw me in the pit. You knew what that meant was certain death as a slave. But God meant it for good. In order to this end, to this purpose, to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God had a greater moral reason to use that sin in a way that we could never do. We cannot sit there and say, well, I'm going to use that sin and somehow, no, we just deal with the consequences. That's usually what the metaphor of life gives you a lemon, make lemonades, the consequences of the sin. God does more than that. He directs it all, as only he can, to save many people alive, as we are Today, the livelihood of our soul. What is the greatest wicked act in history? You know what it is. It's the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet God brought about the life of many people through that death. This is what I mean. God directs all things, but is not the author of sin. And so the worst villains in the world can all gang up together. And they've tried and they're trying. And they cannot overthrow God's plan. Ever, ever, ever. And we have thus the second point, the Father's election. The Father's election, not just God's sovereignty of all things, both in creation and in providence, but God's, the Father in particular, election of our salvation. If the things of this world... If the sins of this world, if the evil machinations of this world cannot overthrow God's plan and in fact are part of his plan and redirect it to greater good, how much more our salvation? The common belief that that salvation, as many of you knew and probably grew up like I did, is man-centered. We never use that word man-centered, but that's functionally what it is. Man selects himself insofar as the work of the Father of election depends on the rebellious sinner electing God. And God says, sure, okay, I'll save you because you want to be saved. Man saves himself insofar as the work of the Son becomes worthless if man refuses to agree with being saved or decides not to be saved later on. Christ died in vain in many people's theology. Because man decided to make it vain, to make it of no effect, to overturn God's plan and holy desire. That's a scary world to live in, isn't it? Man sanctifies himself insofar as the work of the Spirit becomes worthless. If man refuses to submit to that holiness and God's plan is overturned, he cannot bring good out of that wickedness. He cannot sanctify that person. He just decides one day out of his what? Free will. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be in heaven. It's always fascinating to me when I had some of these discussions, and I don't have much anymore. You become a pastor and people run away from you sometimes. Well, if you believe in free will, whatever that may be, and you're in heaven, does that mean you can decide one day to go to hell or go somewhere else and just leave heaven? Because you've got free will. It says man-centered, this way of thinking. It is so much the way of the world. Rather, the Bible describes salvation as we read in Ephesians and here in 1 Peter. Salvation is Trinitarian. It is God-centered. Each member of the Godhead has a redemptive role, and the perspective is from the divine perspective. And these things shall be accomplished, just like providence and creation shall come about because God is so determined and has the power and the might, and it will happen. It's an agreed-upon work of each member in time and space to save the elect. The fancy word for that is the economic trinity, not that there's money exchange, but that it's their respective roles and responsibilities they've agreed to exercise for our salvation. And so we see a threefold 
description here in Peter. The Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. See? I gave you three S's. Makes it easy for you. The Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. And you got it. That's three sermons right there. So this morning, we have the Father saves. The Father selects. The Father guides and directs all things. Chooses those who are saved out of the mass of rebellious sinners. The Son saves, that is, He came to earth, took the body and soul of a man, and lived and died for the elect. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies. He indwells each of the elect to change their hearts unto conversion and make them more holy in obedience to God's law. It's a Trinitarian, God-centered salvation. If you've not read J.I. Packer's Introduction to the Death of the Death, the Death of Death, and the Death of Christ by John Owen, you can find it online. It's quite a title. Ask me and I'll give it to you. That was a stupendous introduction to Owen's book. I never finished Owen's book at the time. I just sat in awe of the introduction. I did finally eventually read Owen's book, by the way. So, the Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. There will be a quiz at the end of service today. The Father selects, or election. And the word sounds is, is just what it sounds like. God elects. You are the object of election. You yourself are not electing yourself. You don't read in the Bible, well, I elected myself. It's always God elects, the Father elects, or you are the elect. Right? A description of you. Chosen. You are chosen or set apart. Angels are called elect because they have been, some have been set apart, uh, not to go to perdition. Others have been set apart to perdition. Christ is called elect because God the Father, uh, chose him to save his people. And we are called elect. Those are the three general usage in the old, t- in, the, in the Bible, in the salvific sense. Specifically, we're chosen unto salvation by God. Elect. You are elect. This is your description. According to what? Your own choice. No, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In Colossians 3.12, we read, Therefore, as the elect of God, not of man, not of yourself, but of God, God the Father, the elect have been given what? What have they been elected for or chosen for? We say salvation, but we can break it down to some, into some particulars. The elect have been given revelation. Romans 11.7, we read, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So the elect are given illumination and truth. Revelation. The elect are also eternally saved, as we know, Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he has justified his elect and his people. And the the election unto salvation is based upon grace. Romans 11.5. Romans 11.5. Even so then... At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You get what you don't deserve. That's grace. And we do not deserve heaven. And so if we are getting heaven, therefore, it is by grace that we are going to heaven. And by grace alone. The remnant according to the election of grace, the choosing of God's mercy. And if by grace it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. He's belaboring an obvious point. It's one or the other. And again, many of us grew up with a teaching of kind of this middle road position. Well, there's grace and there's works, but then there's this thing in the middle called my decision. What? (laughs) You do have a decision. Yes, I've not denied that. We'll talk about that in sanctification. But we know there was a decision before your decision, right? And that was God. That's the point of election. If you are chosen by God, you you will choose God. It's that simple. 
Now it says, elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father. So I want to explain a little bit about foreknowledge. Uh, some take this to mean that God, what? Look down the corridors of time, just freeze frame the entirety of time. It sees every event and thing that you have done or will do and shall do in the future. And looks down the corridors of times and says, Oh, when the gospel is given to Luann here, she'll say yes. So I'm going to choose Luann to be saved. I mean, just describing it that way, you're like, what? So, so what? If there's a thing called creation and providence, and God created all things and directs and guides providence, those events and actions are part of his plan already. There is no future independent of God. So it contradicts on the face of it the doctrine of election. That God chooses us to salvation not because of how good we are, but because of how gracious he is. But it also contradicts the use of this particular word, foreknowledge, in the Bible. In Acts 20.23 we read about Christ in that great heinous event, but also a glorious event. Christ, or him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. First Peter 1.20 we read, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who was manifest in these last times for you? Well, the Son. And the Son was foreordained that is chosen beforehand, before the foundation of the world. And it's unfortunate there because that's the same word, but as a participle. It's a different verbal form, right? You can look that up if you want. It's the same root word. Because although in the English you read foreknowledge, you think of knowledge beforehand. And it can be that in a most rudimentary sense. But more precisely, it is to select in advance to choose or appoint beforehand according to a plan, the foreknowledge of your plan. You knew your plan ahead of time. Romans 8.29, we read, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. The foreknowledge of God is the plan of God who knows all things ahead of time. He knows. He has the foreknowledge of all things ahead of time. Why? Because he has a plan. We read in Acts 15.8, Known to God from eternity are all his works. And providence is his works. The future acts that you're doing are his works. They are foreknown by him because they are foredetermined as well. It's part of his plan. Foreknowledge, therefore, is knowledge before time and space of what his plans are. Some uh, want to be more particular with foreknowledge and say it means for love, and I'm not going to argue against that. Not been especially convinced, but it could be, because the Hebrew usage of the word know, right? Adam and Eve, and Adam knew his wife. Uh, is something more intimate than just, yeah, I knew, I knew down the quarters of time I'm going to marry her, right? Uh, it could be that or a combination of both. Uh, but it's certainly not the case that God's looking down the quarters of time and you did things that caught him off guard. He's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll choose you because you chose yourself. He already has a plan. He knows his works from eternity past. And thus he has knowledge ahead of time of what shall be done and should be done. And according to that knowledge of his plan, you are elect. So what? That election is according to grace and the foreknowledge and foreordination of God. The what, of course, is first and foremost the praise and wonder. That a wretch like myself was chosen by God to go to heaven instead of hell. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Loanne was not his counselor. He did not go to her and say, are you going to choose me or not? She knows it. I know it. All Christians in their heart of heart knows, knows it. They've just been poorly instructed. If you recognize your need of Jesus Christ because of your sins, if your conscience feels guilt and pain because of sin, 
This, this truth of divine election is comforting because the election of grace is not based on your sins, but on his mercy. We can never be obedient enough to merit or gain God's favor. And that's why there's a doctrine of the election of God's grace. It's a source of comfort as well. I already talked about the source of comfort right there because of our sins. But more forward-looking. God elected you to salvation. That means you will have a better body. These pains and strugglings that you have right now and the difficulties are going away. That is guaranteed. Hebrews 11.35, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. They knew and believed in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, that there was going to be a better body. They looked forward to that. And it was guaranteed. Why? Because God promised it. And he could promise it. Why? Because he's all sovereign. And he selects whom he will and saves him by his grace. And it shall come to pass. We who are in the hands of the Father will never fall out of that hand. You will not lose your soul. Romans 8.34 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Random chance? Demon possession? The will of man? A thousand times no. Shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate us from the love of God? A thousand times no. This is especially important when we struggle with sins. The world, the flesh, and the devil throw our sins at us when difficult environments we find ourselves in. Not just 2020, but just difficulties in life, even before then. It's easy to feel down and out because you see your sins. That's part of what it means to be a believer. You're conscious of your sins and you hate your sins. You're sensitive to your sins. But the gospel is God forgiving our sins and protecting our souls from the ultimate consequences of sins. That is hell. You will sin, brothers and sisters. There's no doubt about it. God does not guarantee that sin will be gone before we go to heaven. But what he has guaranteed is he will cover your sins and you will go to heaven in spite of your sins. Praise be to his name. And that can only happen if he's an all-sovereign God who elects us by his mercy and by his compassion. And not because you are wiser, smarter, or more clever, or by chance happen to decide for Christ this time, and maybe you will change your mind later. It should comfort us to know that our sins cannot separate us from the love of our Lord and Savior, because God the Father selected us, God the Son saved us, and God the Spirit sanctifies us. Praise be to his name. Amen and amen. Let us pray. With these words, God, and this exploration of the doctrine of election, election according to the foreknowledge and foreplan of God by his might and power, Lord, we are thankful and praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May it humble us, may it embolden us as well, Lord, as we'll see in sanctification, to know that we can do the first works of obedience, that we can be useful in God's kingdom because your might and power is behind us and overcoming our sins. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing 105, Psalm 105C.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.